Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. It is so good to see you all this morning. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Pete, and I'm one of the pastors, and it's good to be together today. Um, One of the lines that David just read for us in Jesus' prayer in John 17 is a prayer that God's people, followers of Jesus, or in other words, the church, would be one as Jesus is one with the Father. And um, I feel like I simply want to acknowledge that this past year or so has been about as hard as it gets when it comes to a congregation feeling like we're one. We couldn't be more disconnected, more scattered. We haven't had the chance to meet together very often at all. And so on one hand, it's why I celebrate that we're here today, that we're uh, back together again as a family, that we can pursue our oneness. And then on the other hand, it's simply, I think, helpful to name it and to say it's still a little weird, right? We haven't seen each other. We've had people that have left our church in the last year. We have other people that have come to our church new in the last year. We look around and you may not feel like you recognize a whole lot of people. You're wondering where some of your friends are and who all these other people are. I just met a new person, like a baby that I didn't even know existed, right? They keep, these things keep happening. And, and so, um, all I want to say is we are at the beginning of a new season where we are getting to pursue the oneness that God calls us to as the church. And uh, I hope that tonight or t- today and throughout uh, this summer that we will each kind of take an active responsibility in reaching out and getting to uh, know new people, restore relationships, and pursue oneness uh, as God would have us. So I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. I'm going to set a timer because I've got a lot to say today. Um, The passage we're in is John 17. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, or a Bible app, uh, John chapter 17. And the context is um, immediately following what we call the Last Supper, the meal that Jesus shares with his disciples uh, on his last night before being arrested. And here we are maybe hours before Jesus is going to be arrested, and the disciples don't know what's about to happen, but Jesus does. And so here's how Jesus spends his final moments with this group of guys that he has spent the last several years with. Um, He doesn't spend these final moments teaching. He spends them praying. And what we have here is what's known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is essentially functioning in the role of a priest, He's standing on behalf of his friends, his disciples, before God, interceding for them, representing them to God, and also representing God to them. This is um, one of several prayers that we have from Jesus in the Gospels, but it is by far the longest. It's It's a whole chapter here where we get the content of what is going on in this conversation between Jesus and the Father. So another way of putting all this is that up until now, Jesus has been doing a lot of talking to his disciples about God, 
But what we see here at the end is that Jesus is now talking to God about his disciples. And while he's specifically praying for these original 12, or now actually 11 disciples that were with him that day, there's a sense in which uh, he's praying for all of his followers, for past, present, and future, those that would become his disciples, which means that in a sense, we can read these words in scripture and we can hear them as Jesus praying for us, that we are included amongst those who Jesus intercedes for and stands as a high priest on our behalf, which is just a mind-blowing and beautiful idea that we have in Jesus, one who faithfully prays for us. And what we see is that for Jesus, as we focus on these uh, 13 verses from 6 to 19, that prayer isn't simply asking God to do what he thinks God should do. Now, Jesus certainly isn't shy to make requests or to make intercession, but that's not all that prayer is to Jesus. In fact, what we see is that there's a lot more going on than that in this prayer. And what you might summarize this as is Jesus, for Jesus, prayer is gathering all of life up and bringing it before God. And so quickly, if we gave an overview of this chunk of Jesus' prayer, um, then we'll get a little bit more specific. Jesus spends time in this prayer um, celebrating his relationship with the Father. He spends time in this prayer reflecting on the events of his life and his experiences. He spends time in this prayer recounting what God has given him and what God has done for him. And he spends time in this prayer observing how he sees God at work in the world. And then, in the midst of all of that, he makes two requests of God. He asks two things. And in this chunk, they're not for himself. He's already done that. But in this chunk, Jesus prays for his disciples. And he prays really two things. In verse 11, he prays that God would protect us from the evil one so that we may be one as he and the Father are one. So Jesus prays that the Father would protect his people. And secondly, in verse 17, Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify us by the truth as Jesus sends us into the world sanctify or consecrate, set apart, make, make holy by the truth because we have a mission to do. So Jesus prays for our protection and for our sanctification. But here's what you'll notice as you look at the content of Jesus' prayer is that for Jesus, prayer is all about relationships. It's not about ritual, it's not about religion, it's about relationships. Pretty much every single line of this prayer has to do with a relationship that he values. And I would say there's really four key players in these relationships that Jesus is bringing before God in prayer. And we see all of them in verse 6 of John 17. I've revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. So who are the players? First, I have revealed to you. Jesus is speaking of himself, and who's the you? It's God the Father. 
So Christ and God, the Father, are involved in this relationship. For those you gave me out of the world, those who were given, who is that? Well, it's us. It's the disciples, past, present, and future, and given to him out of the world. God, Christ, church, world. And then he spends the rest of the prayer examining, interceding, celebrating, reflecting in the context of those relationships. His relationship with the Father, his relationship with the disciples, his disciples' relationship with one another, and his disciples' relationship with the world. That's Jesus' context for prayer. He spends time reflecting on how all these relationships are connected to one another. So the picture might be that he's weaving this giant tapestry together. God, Christ, church, world, each of these related to one another in a way that's interwoven and interconnected and interdependent. He doesn't see these individuals or these relationships as isolated from one another, but as part of this giant tapestry that we would call the kingdom of God. He talks about God calling people out of the world and giving them to Jesus. Jesus revealing the Father to those who the Father has given him. Jesus giving the disciples the word that God has given him. Jesus sending his disciples into the world just as God sent him into the world. God, Christ, church, world all woven together, interconnected relationships that make up the fabric of life in God's kingdom. This is really the Hebrew concept of shalom that we see throughout the scriptures. Shalom is the idea of rightly ordered relationships. It's peace, not in the sense of just the absence of violence or conflict, but peace in the sense of flourishing. Peace in the sense of being rightly related to God, to ourselves, to one another, and to the rest of God's creation. And so when Jesus prays, he prays with an imagination that's shaped and immersed in a vision of shalom. When Jesus prays, he prays with an awareness of all these relationships. And he prays for the healing and the maturing of these relationships, for the flourishing of these relationships, that they would be rightly ordered, or the biblical word would be righteous. And by doing so, when Jesus prays, he's waging war against the powers of evil that are at work in the world. Because he knows that there are these forces in the world that are hell-bent on destroying all these relationships in any way we can. This is really what the Bible's talking about when it talks about sin. Sin is that power at work that brings destruction and disorder to the relationships that are essential in the fabric of the way God made the world. Sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin is damaging or disordering the relationships between God and humans, between humans and ourselves, humans and one another, humans and the rest of the world. And so when Jesus prays, he's praying with a vision of shalom. And he prays to ensure that his relationships with the Father himself, the disciples in the world, 
are rightly ordered as well. So for Jesus, prayer isn't just asking God to do what he thinks God should do. But in the words of theologian Karl Barth, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And so that's an overview of what we see happening in this prayer. That's what we see Jesus doing in his final moments with his disciples. He prays in and for relationships. But I want to spend um, a little bit of time looking at one key relationship that Jesus is dealing with in this prayer. And that's the relationship between his disciples and what he calls the world. So the word world, <laughs> that's a good one, I know. The word world is used 12 times in these 13 verses. It's one of the key themes that Jesus is wrestling with in prayer. And most of the time, when he uses the word world here, he's talking about it in the context of the relationship that the disciples or the church has with the world. So in verse 6, he says that the disciples were chosen from the world. In verse 11, he says his disciples are in the world. In verse 14, he says his disciples are hated by the world. In verse 15, he says he doesn't want them taken out of the world. In verse 16, he says they are not of the world. But in verse 18, he says that he has sent them into the world. And so what do we make of that? What in the world is Jesus talking about when he talks about the world? Well, it seems kind of hard to pin down. Like on Facebook, Jesus' relationship status with the world would say, what? It's complicated, right? And if you grew up in an American evangelical home in the 80s and 90s like I did, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you remember your Christian parents trying to navigate all the things in the world, uh, which ones were okay for kids and which ones weren't. Like it was okay to celebrate Halloween as long as you didn't dress up like a ghost or like a witch, right? Um, I went to a Christian elementary school, which means we could do Halloween, but we all had to dress like our favorite Bible character, which means every boy in my class was Samson every single year. I uh, always thought it'd be funny to show up as Adam, dress naked, and see what they said, but never pulled the trigger on that. Um, how many of you weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs? I don't know, for some reason, like for Christian kids in the 80s, like that was really the litmus test of godliness. Like, ooh, you're one of those kids whose family lets them watch the Smurfs with all the magic and the potions and stuff. They probably let you smoke crack too, don't they? Like, this is serious stuff. Um, and then there was music, of course, right? We had a very clear distinction between Christian music and secular music. Christian music, good. Secular music, bad, with maybe a few exceptions. Maybe there were a few exceptions made for certain secular bands, but for the most part, um, it had to be Christian. It's funny, now... Um, there's hardly any Christian music that I'll let my kids listen to. <laughs> I really prefer them listening to good music. And every once in a while, I'll make an exception for, you know, Lecrae or Lauren Daigle or Josh Garrels or something like that. But for the most part, no Christian music in my house, not under my roof, um, which apparently now includes uh, Kanye and Bieber. So that's kind of a... Uh, 
a surprise. But back to our question. When we're talking about the world, when Jesus is talking about the world and the relationship that Christians have with the world, what's he talking about? Well, the word world in Greek is cosmos. And it's obviously the world where, word where we get the word cosmos, meaning the universe, or cos cosmology, the study of the origins and development of our universe. And cosmos is actually used three different ways in the Bible. Just like in English, we have some words that are used to mean different things depending on the context. And so we have to pay attention to the context when we see the word world in the Bible. The first use of cosmos is simply to refer to the physical universe, to planet Earth, we might say. And so we just sang, how great thou art, O Lord my God. That's a song celebrating the physical cosmos, the world that God has made. In Romans 1.20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so sometimes in the Bible, the word world simply refers to earth and to the planet, to the physical material world we find ourselves living in and participating in. Other times, the second use of the word world has to do with humanity. And so the first song we sang, based on John 3.16, that for God so loved the world. It's not necessarily saying that God loves the physical creation of trees and plants and animals, although that's true, but in that use, the context is world as people, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So sometimes world or cosmos refers to humanity. And then there's a third way that the word cosmos is used. And it's hard to pin down simply, but it could simply be summarized as the way of the world. It's not talking about the planet, it's not talking about people, but it's talking about the system of the world, the way of the world, or Dallas Willard would say, our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. So when we see the word world, world in the Bible, it's important to figure out which sense uh, the word is being used in. Because if it's referring to the physical world, then that's something that God himself created and says that it's good and it's something that God hasn't given up on. And the hope of the Bible, the hope of the gospel is that the reconciliation of all things, that this world will be restored and renewed and made new. And so we celebrate God's good world. We care for creation. We seek to live gently with our non-human neighbors. And if the Bible's using the word world to refer to humanity, well, this is another object of God's love and affection. People made in the image of God, who he came to in Christ, who he lived among, who he died for. 1 John 2 says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. 
God loves the people of the world. And so we affirm and celebrate the image of God in all people everywhere. We believe that just by being human, every person is entitled to be treated with dignity and respect, whether they're black or white or every shade in between, male or female, child or elderly, gay or straight, born or unborn, Christian or Muslim, beaver or duck. We love all people as God loves But if the word world is being used in that third sense, the way of the world that's opposed to God and his kingdom, then we're talking about something else. The world, as we might define it in this sense, is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in culture, organized around rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Let me read that for you again. The world is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in culture and organized around rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So the Bible often contrasts godliness and worldliness. Godliness is living in this world in the context of our relationships with him and others. Worldliness is living in this world as if this world is all there is. The world is what happens when sin spreads through a society where that fabric of shalom those interconnected relationships that mark up the kingdom of God are pulled apart when threads are pulled, when there's holes, when there's rips, when there's tears. The world is what happens when relationships are destroyed and disordered. And when that happens, we find ourselves inhabiting a world that no longer looks the way God intended it to. Isaiah 5, way back in the prophets, he declares, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. A.W. Tozer would say that the cause of all our human miseries is a radical moral dislocation. Living as if this world were all there is. Living outside of the context of rightly ordered relationship with God, self, others, and creation. As if this world is all there is. We begin to get turned upside down. And that which was evil, we call good. That which is good, we call evil. Relationships fall apart. I would say that much of what we tend to typically call culture in a lot of ways is what the Bible would call the world. So there's a famous theologian in the 40s and 50s named Richard Niebuhr, and he taught at Yale and was considered one of the most important Christian ethicists of the 20th century. In 1951, he wrote this book called Christ and Culture, And it was essentially him wrestling with all the different ways throughout Christian history that the church had related to the world. 
and this complicated, hard to pin down relationship. What does it look like for the church to live in relationship with the world? And he boils it down to basically five primary viewpoints that Christ against culture, secondly, Christ of culture, third, Christ above culture. Fourth, Christ and culture in paradox or in tension with one another. And finally, Christ, the transformer of culture. This is a conversation that's been going on since really the beginning of Christianity, trying to figure out what a rightly ordered relationship between the church and culture looks like. And Jesus then comes in John 17, and we listen to his prayer trying to sum it up. Verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. And so this is, of course, is where we get the famous youth group slogan that Christians are to be in the world, but not of it. And that's right, of course, but what does it actually mean? Well, there have been times throughout the history of the church when it's very clear that the kingdom of the world stands in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. That the violence, the greed, the injustice, the oppression, the immorality that's prevalent in society contradicts everything about the life of shalom that God calls his people to. And so there are those cases where the church stands, so to speak, against the world, or at least uh, apart from it. But there's other times in history and in the world today where there's aspects of culture that resonate with us from the vision of the kingdom of God, where we see visions of justice, of love, of holiness, of truth, of beauty, of goodness. And the church can stand along with the world and celebrate and receive those things. There's other times where the church says, yeah, the world's got a good idea here, but we need to come in and give it some context, give it some theology, give it some redemption so that this part of the world can truly sing uh, praises to the name of God. All different kinds of moments and all different kinds of situations. Now, here's what's interesting. I think that in a time and place like the one we're living in, meaning what's been called a post-Christianized society. The ways of the world often creep into the life of the church in undetected ways, ways that distort or muddy the shalom amongst us. And I think that we live in a moment where our main temptation isn't to pull away from culture, and to be separatists, but our main temptation is to be drawn into culture, to be assimilated into it or colonized by it, so that we are no longer distinct from the way of the world. Listen to how David Tackle put this. I want to read a few sentences. Listen carefully. He says, an alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith as largely a volunteer enterprise. And what he means by volunteer is really a do-it-yourself enterprise. 
He says they pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from culture. And this syncretistic approach to faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine and morals rather than God. Much of its appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold to the illusion of being Christian-like in one's behavior. Do you hear what he's saying? Our temptation in our moment is to thoughtlessly adopt and absorb practices and approaches and beliefs and morals from the world, baptizing them, We're not being separatists, but we're being syncretists in merging with the world. Now, as you hear me say those words, you're picturing a certain kind of person. You're picturing a certain kind of Christian. And it's the Christians unlike you. It's the Christians on the other end of the social or political or theological spectrum. Yeah, it's those people out on the left that have really merged with the world, or it's those people out on the right that have really merged with the world. And here's the thing. This is a temptation that is open to all of us. It does not discriminate. It's a trap that Satan will happily use to ensnare any of us. So let me get real. On the left, the temptation is towards what we might call Christian wokeness. That we go right along with the world in whatever movement or progress is deemed the trend of the day. Including the redefinition of things like marriage and sexuality. In fact, we're so woke that we won't even pray to God as a father because that's offensive and patriarchal. But what we forget is that God actually self-identifies as a father. You might even say his preferred pronouns are he, him, and his. On the right, the temptation is Christian nationalism, where we conflate Christianity with American political conservatism. We think they're one and the same, and we end up caring more about the Second Amendment than the Second Great Commandment. Are we having fun yet? I want to invite you, Antioch, I want to invite us, brothers and sisters, to rather than receive this word of God and think about all the other people, I want us to think about ourselves and prayerfully consider, God, in what ways has our faith been colonized or assimilated by the culture? In what ways have I been more influenced by the world than by Christ and the scriptures? And if we pray that, sincerely and listen attentively. We're going to be surprised that as we cling to Jesus and to his word, that the result is we're going to become a kind of people that won't fit nicely into any of the world's categories. We're going to become a kind of people that are truly set apart or sanctified people who display the beauty and truth and goodness of Jesus in a way that the world doesn't know what to do with. Are you conservative or are you liberal? You say, I'm a Christian.
And the quote I read, the foundation of this mistake is to assume that we're in charge of our own lives. To assume that we get to pick and choose and DIY our faith, spirituality, and a religion in a way that's, a, that's comfortable, accommodating, and acceptable to ourselves and to the world that we live in. And that's where we get it wrong at the very beginning. In John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. You are not your own. Your life does not belong to you. You have been saved by God out of the world and given to Jesus. You belong to him. Your life is his. This is the essence of Christianity that you belong to Christ. And so in closing, how do we ensure that we maintain rightly ordered relationship with the world? Or in other words, how are we sanctified? How are we set apart? How do we grow into the kind of people Jesus imagines that we would be? I know I'm prone this direction or that. I know you are too. I know that sometimes that makes us mad at each other. So what do we do? How are we sanctified? Well, it's in two ways. First, by the word of God. Secondly, by the word of God. In the Bible, the word of God is used both to refer to a person and to a book. That Jesus is the word of God, especially in John's gospel. The logos, the word made flesh, the physical manifestation of the eternal God. God who has come to us as a human. Jesus is the word of God and he is the ultimate revelation of who God is and what God is like. He's the word of God in the sense that if God has a word to say, that word is Jesus. And so we start by looking to him. And we don't try to get Jesus to fit into our perspective or our politics or our practice. We look to him as the ultimate authority, the creator and redeemer, the one to whom we belong. And secondly, we look to the word of God, meaning the Bible. Christianity is not a DIY religion. It's a received faith. We don't get to make it up as we go. We are part of a much longer story that's been passed down generation to generation. And there's always room to question, to reform. But we have to do so in the context of what God has revealed in the scriptures. That we hold this book to be the authoritative self-revelation of God that gives his commandments for how his people ought to live in relationship to this world. And it's hard work. We have to wrestle with the text and we're gonna have difficult conversations at times, but ultimately wherever we land on whatever it is we're talking about has to be informed by God's word and by God's word. And so the invitation is not a list of rules, for here's how you go and live in the world, Antioch. 
The invitation is, will we follow Jesus into a practice of prayer that's marked by relationships and the need to discern for the Spirit of God to reveal the Word of God to us in such a way that we're able to live with wisdom and integrity and faithfulness to Christ in all else. Because sanctification doesn't look like being pulled out of the world. Sanctification looks like being sent into the world on the mission of Jesus, with the Spirit of Jesus, as the people of Jesus. That's who we are. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Christ, we acknowledge that we are prone to wander, that there are so many temptations to the right, to the left, or any other direction where we want to create a world or a reality or a morality for ourselves that's comfortable, that we acknowledge that your kingdom is not from this world. And so, Lord, we pray, as a church, where we are in our story as an expression of your kingdom here on earth, as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, Lord, would you help us to be prayerfully dependent upon you? Would you help us to recognize the broken, damaged, disordered relationships that exist amongst us? amongst us in the world, amongst us and you, amongst us and ourselves. Would you give us the faith to invite you to bring the healing power of Jesus and apply it to those broken places in us, in our church, and in our world. For the glory of your name, amen.